Hi everyone, I'm Tanya Luna, a psychology researcher and educator. And I'm Brian Luna, I look straight into the sun. And this is Talk Psych to Me. A show where I explain research and theories from the field of psychology. And I try to keep up. Let's get into it. Okay, Brian, today in honor of the upcoming impending Super Bowl... <laughs> Does impending only mean bad or could it could there no, be good impending? I've never heard of anything impending. The only thing I've ever heard impending is doom. Yeah, right. So you don't say, hey, your baby's impending. <laughs> when is your baby gonna impend? I think if I were pregnant, I would feel like my baby is impending. It's well, scary. Yeah, yeah, well, I guess, but not. Okay, the for upcoming, me. forthcoming, soon to be here Super Bowl. Super Bowl Sunday! Super Bowl Sunday is on its way. And we are going to be talking about winning and losing. Very nice. I think this is going to be a fun topic because winning and losing are often a fact of life. So we may as well get a better understanding of how winning works. And I think it can be helpful for us to be better losers, especially, you know, in your case. Wow. You know, a very famous coach once said, Coach Lombardi, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Boom. I think we should end this. I think the episode ends right now. Thank you for listening to Talk Psych to me. The only thing is it seems false. Wow. All right. If you want to go against Lombardi, good luck. Let's go. If winning was the only thing, it wouldn't really be called winning. It would just be called the way it is. But we have winning in contrast to losing. Get out of my head, Luna. (laughs) Get out of my head, Luna. All right. What do you got? All right, so you feel good about this topic? Hell yeah. Can you think of any particularly memorable wins or losses that you've experienced in your life? When we got married. Aww. I'll let you decide which one that is. Hey! Hey! One of the earliest memories I have of winning is my brother used to play football, backyard football. Like that's That was my first introduction to, to the American football. I, for any foreigners out there, I'm talking about American football. Why are they the foreigners? Isn't it all because kind of I'm relative? Because I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here where, We're there, in the where there's right football. Now. Yeah, but I'm here where there's American football. We are all citizens of the internet. Where I'm sitting right now, there's American football all Fine. around me. Okay. And it's Super Bowl Sunday, so I think I can call it football this week. Fine. One of the earliest memories I have is um, my brother used to play backyard football with all the neighborhood kids in the apartment complex that we lived in. And I used to just have to sit and watch. I was too little. And these guys were, I mean, to me, they were big. They were huge. My brother was a big, big boy. You know, he was the big kid on the block. And I didn't get any of that. <laughs> Roger took all the big in the neighborhood. I was always, <laughs> I was really short and I was like undersized. And one day, a kid named Donald Malloy, he got hurt or he wasn't playing or something. And they needed an extra person. They needed just an extra body. So my brother was like, get in here, Jimmy. They used to call me Jimmy. I don't know why. But they're like, get in here, Jimmy. You're playing. Like, just don't screw anything up. You know? And I was like, oh my God, I just don't want to screw anything up. I ended up getting the ball. I don't know how it happened. And it was like late. And I scored a touchdown. Wow. And that meant I ran past the three little sprig trees that were there and made it to the sidewalk in front of the laundromat. And that was the touchdown. And I got to tell you, my brother and I had a big brother, little brother relationship, meaning that he used to like, you know, what would be called physical assault now. (laughs) No, no, no. My brother was great, but he was like a big brother, you know, and I was a little six six years younger than him. So he was like, hey, get out of here, you stupid little punk. And um, in that moment, he came running over to me and everyone was so happy and everyone was so happy for me. And I, I just started, <laughs> I started crying. <laughs> yeah, I just remember crying and I was like in the first grade or something and I was crying, but I was so happy and it was just so overwhelming. I was just like completely 
taken by all these emotions that were coming and everybody's and my brother was running at me this time he wasn't hitting me he didn't have a rock and he like picked <laughs> me up and he's like holding me and it, all the other guys like slapped me on the pat tobin and all those guys like slapped me on the back and stuff and it was awesome it was it was it was great it was wow. great yeah and you were six years old no, no, I was 19. I got held back a few times. I was 19 years old, but I was in the first grade. It's a long story. I don't want to so get winning, Texas, Texas education. So winning feels pretty great. Winning feels amazing. I mean, it's it's a really good thing, and it's something that should be celebrated. In this world of participation trophies and everything, I do think that it is important to win. Yeah, It's important to experience that real win versus yeah, the yeah, not just the, a win. Yeah, I mean, when, uh, when I was in elementary school, we used to have track and field day, which was AKA the humiliation day. And uh, I mean, I lost the 50 yard dash to Ruby Munoz. I never forget that. She had the blue ribbon and I had a gr- like a green one, which was like sixth place or something like that. She didn't just beat me. She beat me so far. I could read the bottom of her sneakers. Like that's how Damn. clean. Yeah, that's how clean she beat me. Up until I was a senior in high school, this happened. We we're in the fifth grade, fourth grade. I've been a senior in high school. I tried to get her a, to give me a rematch, and she never bit. She, she, yeah, she took that too. So. Well, so both of the stories that you shared happened quite some time ago. I wonder, do you want to have a more recent experience of winning or more likely losing? Okay, let's can do, we do it. Can we do yeah. a quick? Uh... Yeah. Okay, so what do you have in front of us right now? This is a game I play on my iPad called Ice Rage. Okay. Um, I didn't grow up with hockey, so I have no advantage over you. This is a two-person game on one iPad, and the object is very simple. Score. Hey, hey, no, 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 no. All right. Wait, 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 wait. wait. No, I okay, I'm sure. Gonna... I'll hold. I'll hold. No, I'm going to hold. I'm going to hold. Ooh. No, no. Shoot. Oh, I'm like Gretzky. <laughs> you better go get out of here. Eat my puck. No. No. Oh, yes. That says red wins. Okay. <sighs> Good. Good match. <laughs> hey, that's Good my match. water. Come on. You shouldn't get... I worked up a sweat. Does that count as exercise? Yeah, it does for the day. So I actually mm-hmm. lost that on purpose so you can experience um, a win and yeah. describe what a win feels like. <laughs> I'm kidding. I played my butt off. What did it feel like to win? It feels like I'm riding a horse made out of Dr. Pepper <laughs> and instead of wind is pizza flying through my oh. face and in my hair. And it feels it feels great. I, I felt really sweaty. Um, my cheeks are hot right now. My forehead is hot. You got I'm like ch- pink little circles on your cheeks. Yeah, yeah, I got pink circles in front of my, um, not in front of my cheeks, on my cheeks. <laughs> and now I'm really hyper. <laughs> <laughs> so from a neurological perspective, researchers have done a lot of work on this and they have discovered that winning feels awesome. Really? Researchers found that? I know. It was shocking. How did you find that research? It must be buried away in some bunker. Various researchers have found that when we win, our testosterone levels go up, making us feel more powerful. Yeah, that's true. And our dopamine levels rise. (laughs) That's why victory feels rewarding. Researchers Jessica Tracy and David Matsumoto even Mm -hmm. found that winners and losers reveal how they feel in their body language. Oh, so yeah. they studied Olympic athletes and <laughs> blind Paralympic athletes uh, from over 30 countries. And they actually looked specifically at photos of the moment of victory. Yeah. What do you think they found? Heads high, chests out, smiles, eyes like big like dinner plates because they're like trying to take it all in, looking for their parents and stuff. Yeah. What's really interesting about their research is that even blind athletes that had never seen anyone win before, oh, yeah. they had the same exact body language as sighted athletes. And it was the stuff that you described plus the 
V pose. Oh, sure. Both yeah. Both arms in the air, which yeah. is exactly what you did just now when you beat me. <laughs> That's right. That's and right. losers also had a very similar body language as well, which is... Probably they were looking at the ground, shaking their heads, maybe eyes closed, maybe kind of pursed lips. It's almost like we get smaller yeah, when we lose. exactly. And we take up all this space when we win. You even see this in other animals as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, psychologist Amy Cuddy has even found that you can make yourself feel more like a winner, feeling stronger or more confident if you reverse engineer it. So this is a concept that she calls postural feedback. So in her research, she had participants either hold a power pose or a low power pose for one minute before a mock interview. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you try that for me right now? So let's have you, we won't do it for a whole minute, but if you had to hold a power pose, what would you do? Like picture yourself as you're like... Wolverine. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. I don't think the Wolverine pose is quite what they did in their research. You said power pose. Can we try more of a boring one? Behind your back, you're the boss. All right, all right, fine. I'll do the boring. (laughs) Like you're Wolverine, but in a corporate setting. Wolverine would never be in a corporate setting. I'll I'll do what you say, but Wolverine would never be in a corporate. We're not going to argue about this. Uh, Superman in a corporate setting. Actually, Superman and Clark Kent is a really interesting one. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're sitting in a power pose right now. How are you feeling? Not like Wolverine, but I feel good. <laughs> okay, now I want you to do low power pose. So give me like the Clark Kent. So you're very little. All of a sudden, your shoulders are down. You're looking down. How do you feel? It's hard for me to not feel powerful. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> what do you think I, yeah. they found? What's your guess? You're sitting in a, you know, making yourself small, kind of shriveled up, looking down versus taking up space. Oh. What do you think their research found? What everyone else who didn't do the research knows automatically, which is, is that uh, the the people that were smaller felt smaller and felt like quieter, and maybe they didn't weren't as quick on the interview. And the people who were powerful were a little more confident. So you think this is self evident? Yeah, of course. You know how I know this? How? Well, oftentimes you can always see when two boxers into the ring. Like, okay, I'll put my money on that guy. So you yeah. think you can predict who's going to win based on their body language going I into the I think you have ring. a good idea. Wow, yeah. that's super interesting. I think you have a good idea. So you're, you're right. What she found is that taking up more space led to more confidence, led to better performance. So not just self-concept, mm-hmm. but evaluation of others. In her original research, she also found that when people took up more space, their testosterone levels went up and their cortisol levels went down, which is your stress levels. Oh, wow. It's interesting that you say that it's self-evident because her original research was done in 2010. It got a lot of attention. People were power posing all over the I place. I remember that. I and remember then that. a research team wasn't able to replicate her research and everyone started <laughs> calling her a phony. And they were like, power posing is fake. Amy Cuddy doesn't know what she's talking about. She got so much hate for it. May I say that the people who were doing the pose for the power, in other words, like... They didn't know why they were doing it. They were just told to either take up space or not take up space. But it has to be connected. There has to be some kind of context. In other words, just doing the pose isn't enough. Like, it's doing a pose and thinking you're as powerful as you are. There's a famous fighter right now in the UFC. He's probably the most popular. I I don't even need to tell you what he does. And if I say the name Conor McGregor, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. (laughs) Even if you don't watch uh, 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 UFC or or MMA, you know who he is because of his confidence. He's always walking around in a winning place. He actually patented this walk like he has a patent not it's not a patent but i'm saying like he's known now known for this walk and they do it in other sports emulating him uh as as conor mcgregor it started off with vince mcmahon the chairman of the wwe and he has this particular like walk where he flails his arms and 
Conor McGregor liked that so much that he took that and that's how he would walk around press fights. He would flail his arms and he would walk with his pelvis out first and his chest puffed out and it became this thing. So in combat, like sports like that, you have to believe, you have to know, not just power pose. You have to know. So you're saying the behavior has to go along with the thought. Absolutely, absolutely. And by the way, there's a victory for Cuddy because she, in 2018, did a meta-analysis of 55 different studies and found that the effect was real, that there's now significant, substantial evidence that shows that it does happen. The testosterone-cortisol relationship isn't consistent, but the feeling of confidence is there. And what's cool about her finding is that the body language changes the thinking. I think what you're saying is if you combine the thinking and the body language together, even freaking better. But what's really cool is recognizing the relationship between our mind and our body, that it's not just I think it and so my body reacts. It's Mm -hmm. also I'm doing a certain thing with my body and so I I start feeling it. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes me wonder, you taking up as much space as you do. What the hell is that? Do you like horizontally? I know, uh, this is a, this is a, a, oh, a subtle <laughs> shot about dieting, and I know I gotta lay off the. That, I, I didn't it. mean that horizontal. I meant My you God. have very broad shoulders. Mm-hmm. You tend to knock things down when you walk into rooms. <laughs> I've seen the way people look at you when you get on the subway, where they're like, "Oh, hey, no," they're like, "Oh." Yeah. It comes a nice guy. What you save in vertical space, you Mm -hmm. take up in horizontal space. I made that deal right off the bat. (laughs) So I I do wonder, like when I told you to get into a low power pose, you really weren't feeling it. Do you think that being the size that you are makes you feel more powerful? Do you think having broad shoulders makes you feel more powerful? Uh, That almost sounds like cocky to say yes or, you know, or, or it sounds like being humble to say no, but... Truth is, is that there are situations where I do have to make myself smaller to make other people feel safer or whatever. Really? Can you tell me about that? If I get on an elevator and it's late at night or whatever, uh, and a woman gets on with me, I I try to make myself smaller so I don't... So you like shrivel up a little bit? I don't shrivel up. Because that's not creepy. No, no. You hide in the corner. (laughs) You crouch. I do. I I, I try try to stay... I love it when a man crouches with me in the elevator. (laughs) No, what I do is I, I, I make sure they can see me at all times. If possible, I let them see. <laughs> No, this is going to sound terrible. So you crouch in front of no, them. No, I don't crouch. What I'll do is I'll make sure they stand behind me. I want them to feel safer like because uh, looking at me, you would think that I might be up to no good or something, you know. Because um, you probably aren't. Because I probably am not. I, so I you do. make yourself I, smaller in elevators, which is very thoughtful, I have right. to say. But but in but in competition, even if I'm not feeling it, like in the sixth grade, I had three boxing matches and they weren't like what you see on TV in a ring. They were like in a garage where there were mats on the ground and they were looked like garden hoses for the ropes. And it was these two training facilities, two schools that would bring their fighters. We'd go to one gym, they'd come to our gym. And I used to get so nervous before a match. So I would have to kind of fake it where I would try to like make myself bigger, you know, just because. But looking across at the other guy, I would see he was just as nervous as I was. And that always helped me not have to fluff. I never called anyone out. I was never like arrogant or whatever. But you weren't a trash talker. I wasn't a trash, especially, I couldn't say anything with that mouthpiece in. But I, I wasn't a trash talker. I, I was never, until I got to high school and played like football at that level, was I a trash talker. So it helped you feel bigger by noticing that your opponent wasn't all that big. But it was also the only time I can remember where I had to make myself bigger just so I wasn't afraid. Not that the other guy was afraid of me. 
just so that I had the courage to go out there and do it. I use the postural feedback technique, particularly when I was younger, like if I was doing public speaking in front of a large audience and I felt really self-conscious of being the youngest one in the room, but teaching people something. And so I would definitely have this wide stance and, you know, kind of intentionally take up space, maybe move around the stage, make sure I'm kind of claiming the space, which made me feel more confident. I have no idea how it looked to others, well, but it, it turned out. did it work for you? Did it, I did think you, so. Yeah, yeah it, it worked for me. So you don't I'll, think you would have had that, because con- you're a very confident person. Do you think that confidence would have been in you regardless? I think I still today, if I feel insecure or self-conscious have to remind myself to take up space Hmm. that said now that i'm in a place where i'm in a leadership role or i'm often the individual with the most organizational authority or power in the room are you talking about our marriage (laughs) i wish (laughs) (laughs) i will very intentionally make myself smaller So, for example, with my team, I try not to take up space, especially if someone doesn't know me. As someone gets to know me, I don't worry about it so much. I'm not as self-conscious about my body language. On the other hand, if I'm working with, let's say, a group of executives, I'll more deliberately take up more space, have a wider stance so that they can feel at ease knowing that I know what I'm talking about. Okay, so we know that winning feels great. Yeah. But here's where the story gets a little bit more complicated. Sometimes almost losing is the best motivation. So a study by Jonah Berger and Devin Pope analyzed real-world data from 60,000 basketball games, including 18,000 NBA games, and they wanted to see the impact of being in the lead on winning the game. So in particular, they looked at the score at halftime, and they used that to see if they can predict what would the ultimate score be. (laughs) So get to halftime. Yeah. And you have a certain score. Mm -hmm. And now they wanted to see, would that score predict who ultimately won or lost? So if you're at halftime and if you want to be on the winning team, how do you want to be scoring relative to your competition? You want to be ahead. You want to be ahead. Yeah. And what's your prediction? Like a lot ahead, a little bit ahead? A lot ahead. (laughs) No, no, uh, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, you want to be in a, in a, a good lead. Like if you're at halftime in a football game, you're not going to be very relaxed if you only have a seven or three, a three or seven point lead. If you have a 24 point lead, chances are you're going to come out on top. Okay, on so top. if you want to be on the winning team, your guess is at halftime, you want to be in the lead. Sure. And you're absolutely right. So again, did they really need I can't believe this is research. But when you asked me the question, I was like, is this a trick question? It, but <laughs> this is where the plot thickens. Okay. So yes, generally being in the lead at halftime is a great predictor of success. Mm-hmm. Except dun dun dun. Dun. Except if you were behind by just a little bit. So if you're behind by one point at halftime, you're actually more likely to win the game. I can see that. So the I hypothesis mean... is that the most motivating place to be is a little bit behind no that makes complete sense i mean it also makes for a closer game it that's when they say that's when you hear commentators go it's anybody's ball game you know but why do you think that is for the player why would being a little bit behind be so motivating well because it is a motivator like you are so close it's not a blowout blowouts you could see the other team like well we got to finish the game you know, uh, you see it in the NFL all the time. You see it in other in other sports, even basketball. You kind of stop putting in all that effort. No, I wouldn't say, look, I'm not going to sit there and, and, and disrespect professional athletes, but there is a moment when you're like, you know when a game is out of reach. If we know that being a little bit behind is kind of the, the best motivation for victory, mm-hmm. how do you think we can use that finding to our advantage? 
when I used to work for Dior or YSL, we used to compete against other stores in our company. So like East Coast against the West Coast, like oh, cool. uh, Beverly Hills against Manhattan. And you're like, oh, they're they're so close to their monthly goal. And we always wanted to be on top, which we were. And, and you know, <laughs> we'd always want to be, you know, the, the, the top dog. And it's a friend, like all the money goes in the same place. All the praise goes to the same company, everything. But amongst us, amongst the stores, there was always that. And, and every once in a while, there'd be a smaller store like Costa Mesa that would have a better day than everyone. And they would be really riding on high, you know. And all and, of a and sudden, we, that makes your team less complacent. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, they're like, into exactly. We can't let Costa Mesa beat us again. You That's know, great. Nothing wrong with Costa Freaking Mesa. Freaking Costa Mesa. Freaking Costa Mesa. Okay, so we know that if you're losing by just a little bit, it can be really, really motivating. That said, if you do end up losing, it can be incredibly demotivating. So Laura Kudrana and her team looked at the happiness levels of Olympic athletes, specifically looking at the differences between gold, silver, and bronze winners. And before we talk about that, I'm going to show you some photos. Okay. Take a look at those facial expressions. Let's look at the the first three people. How would you describe those facial expressions? Miserable, les miserable. The photo on the bottom, you'll see. I can tell you exactly. Gold, silver, and bronze winners, but I won't tell you which is which. The middle is gold. Okay. If you're looking at the photo in the yellow jacket, bronze. Okay. And then that miserable son of a bitch on the left <laughs> is the silver. Interesting. So clearly psychologists don't even need to do research. They can just call Brian Luna and just be yeah. like, Brian, can you explain humans to me? And you'll be like, yeah, here's the thing about humans. Yeah. Because this was right. actually a really surprising finding to psychologists. Th- this the thing photo? That you just identified. Which Th- is what? Who did you say was the miserable looking person? What do you think they won? Silver. So you're telling me the gold winner and the bronze winner are happier than the silver winner? Yes. Why is that? Well, the gold won the gold. He's the one with the mouth open like... Hey, 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 you know, and, and, and the one on the right is happy because they placed, they got a medal. Okay. So why do you think the silver is so miserable? Because he didn't get gold <laughs> because like to get, to get to the Olympics and win a bronze, that's a, that's a huge accomplishment. That means you beat out maybe 16 or 30 other athletes in whatever the sport is. And the one on the left means one guy beat me. <laughs> one person beat me by like maybe a, if it's a time thing, that a tenth of a second. If this is like figure skating or something, that means it may be like a point or two points. When the Super Bowl is going to be played, there's going to be the team that wins. Yeah, I know how the Super Bowl works. And then who gives a shit? <gasps> that team went through so much the entire season to get to this spot <laughs> and they lost I can't imagine what it's like to lose the Super Bowl. I, I can't imagine to be the runner-up because there's no prize for that. There are no t-shirts. Do you know what they do? Because they, they print t-shirts for both teams. They print championship t-shirts for both teams. Oh, and they donate like those shirts. Like an alternate universe. Yeah, and they donate those shirts. I, mean, that's I don't the want those I shirts. I, hell yeah, I like I my do. entire wardrobe to be <laughs> alternate reality shirt. So it turns out that gold and bronze winners were the happiest. Mm-hmm. And the most unhappy were the silver winners. And the better the silver winners performed, the more unhappy they of were. Of course. Whereas the gold, the better they performed, the happier they were. The bronze, the better they performed, the happier they were. For the silver, they were like, oh, that son if of a... I was just a tiny bit better. So did I get this right? You got it absolutely right. All the photos that you're looking at there are images These are all of silver, silver yeah. winners. <laughs> 
I don't mean to laugh at him. He looks but... so miserable. Oh, wow. Okay, so we really like winning. We really dislike losing. This just in. <laughs> Even when it comes to teams that we root for, this phenomenon holds true. Phenomenon. <laughs> so, for example, there's a super interesting phenomenon that happens to sports fans. And let's see if it happens to you. Okay. Tell me a little bit about how the Cowboys did in the playoffs. They didn't get to the playoffs this year. You know why? Why? Because they don't finish games. That's why. They don't. They didn't get to the playoffs this year. And then even if they did get to the playoffs, they always lose in the first round. So what are you asking me? What do you want to know? <laughs> I don't understand why we have to talk about this. Okay, so here's the really interesting finding. Yep. When people are asked to talk about the sports teams that they're allegedly fans of, if the team is winning, they describe the team using the pronoun we. If the team oh. is losing, they use the pronoun they. <laughs> Sons of bitchin' science got me. So in psychology, you're going to love this term. This is called burging and corfing. What do you think that stands for? Burging and corfing. Well, honestly, corfing, uh, I think I heard that's really big in Vegas, but both people have to be willing participants. Wow. Otherwise, it's illegal. And burging? burfing is... Burging. Bur- burling? Burging. Burgeoning. Is or burging if you want. Well, no, I I burged earlier when I I drink too much Dr Pepper, drink it really fast, and I was like, I'm burging, I'm gonna be burging all night. And um, okay, so burging or burging stands for basking in reflected glory, and corfing stands for cutting off reflected failure. Where have you seen this in action? Is it the same thing as like when a celebrity passes away and then people on Facebook are like, make it about them? You know, they're like, oh my God, I remember when that person and I met briefly in an elevator and it affected my life and that. And yeah, I don't know why, A, so many things in your life revolve around things that happen in elevators. And elevators are very popular for me. B, you went really <laughs> sad with this. Okay, it's right. more like you post a selfie with a celebrity and all of a sudden people are supposed to feel like you're that much better as a human or hmm. that you're more important. Okay. Yeah. You know, you really don't see people posting a lot of selfies with people who are not doing so well in life. No, I guess that also happens with um, inanimate objects, like people posting selfies with like fancy cars. Like, oh, uh, yeah. Like, you know, oh, there's even a, if it's not your car. I, I was I, I can't remember who and I don't want to shout anybody out because I, I don't remember who this was. OK, I'm gonna say, I think it was Hector. Sorry, heck. He saw this really nice car and he gave me his phone. He's like, here, take a picture of me with that. And I was like, why? That's not your car. And he was like, yeah, just take a picture of me with that. And I was like, what are you going to do with it? And he's like, I'm going to post it. And I was like, why? That's not your car. Like, am I supposed to believe that you just happened to, to get a Lamborghini in Manhattan? And like, that's what you do. But no, he was like, no, people want to see that. And I was like, no, I don't want to see it. I don't want to take a picture of that. But he, if people wanted to see it, he could have just taken a picture of the car without himself right, in without it. Right. So you know what I did? I took a picture of just him. And wow. I didn't get, and, and I was like, I got it, I got it. And he's like, you sure? Was like, you didn't let him he bask? He didn't check. No, no, I took a picture of just Why him. Why just let him bask? With the other side of the street. <laughs> I'm just not. Yeah, so basically it's like anytime someone takes a picture with a celebrity or they're talking about all the great things that are happening with their friends, that might be an attempt to bask. As an actor, you know, when someone really famous is doing well, I remember um, uh, we had a friend of ours that went from, you know, AMDA, the school I went to. And then they were on Broadway in a very popular show. They were on Hamilton. 
and people were like, oh my God, I'm so happy for so-and-so. I remember when we first started and we yep. were in class and we were great. And Check and out all like, those pronouns. Yeah. And I was like, what we, is this? We, 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 yeah, all, the, all of a sudden people speak in French. They're like, <laughs> we, 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 we. And I was like, hey, wait a second. Like, this dude is doing really well. And, you know, so I, I what I did, I sent a private message to this gentleman and I was like, hey, man, you know, grads, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, who's this? No, I'm just uh, <laughs> but, but, like, people were, like, posting, like, photos of them when they were, yeah. like, in school and when they were younger. And I was like, that's some, I don't know, it just seems a little. They're Bergen. Yeah, they're Bergen. On the other hand, corfing is also very much a real phenomenon. So researchers have even found that when we're part of a losing team, we tend to distance ourselves from them, literally. So we spend less time with them. Team cohesion suffers. We basically just don't want to be associated with losers. Yeah. They're corfing. They're corfing. Yeah. I, I think this Mighty is... Mighty a... morphin' range. Well, let me ask you this. Why do you think burging and corfing are so common? I think it's very common because of acceptance. Like we all want to be accepted in one way or another, either associated with a winning team. So it's all about status, I think, like how we're seen, how we're perceived. Yeah, I think as human beings, we're incredibly, incredibly status driven. Have you ever seen a selfie of someone with like a really nice car or celebrity and felt like, yeah, this person is better than I thought? Like, do you think it works? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, it always looks like pandering because they're panda bears. I would be super interested to see research looking at whether it works or if it's just something we have this desire to do. I think it's more of a desire to do. I can't imagine like people. Or name droppers. Sometimes name droppers. I don't know because like you have these influencers. We're in this time of influencers. This is what they do. And people ride on those coattails. Tries out a product or says something good about a show or a Mm -hmm. movie and they have status. All of a sudden there's that halo effect and people are more willing to take whatever that thing is seriously. How often have you seen someone get really jazzed if they get retweeted yeah by someone who is either an influencer or someone and i think part of that is just exposure but the other piece to it is yeah we do tend to take things seriously if you respect the individual or if you look up to this individual you kind of want to be a part of whatever they like yeah yeah so maybe keep burging i'm gonna burg it like a nurgit i hope that sticks um The only thing that I think sucks about all of this is at the end of the day, I think we could learn a lot more from losing than we can from winning. I absolutely agree. And and, and winning is that much sweeter. Uh, growing up, we, we stunk when we were in the eighth grade playing football. And I remember we went an entire season without scoring a touchdown. Oof. It, yeah, we were terrible. I don't really know you that well. <laughs> no, but we were middle school. We didn't know what we were doing. And... But this was the group that stayed together. And by the time we were seniors, we were winning games. And it was so rich. It was more meaningful. It was way more meaningful. And anytime you can get past an obstacle and win, it just makes that win that much sweeter, like we were talking about. Absolutely. And I think sometimes even a loss can be really meaningful if you take the time to learn from it. Yeah, it's just take it. It's just what you can extract from the loss. Unfortunately, there are a lot of bad coaches out there in the developing years, I should say. And the loss is a blame game or the loss is, you know, um, what went wrong instead of like, what can we do better? Yeah. You know, and, and they really, I, I think nowadays it's gotten a lot better. But when I was growing up, you know, <laughs> we, we weren't always encouraged when we <laughs> lost, you know. so There's this great quote from the poet Carl Sandburg. He writes, a tree is best measured when it's down. And so it is with people. Yeah. 
I, I just, he probably never played football. Wow. No, I'm just <laughs> So in our last few minutes, yeah. should we talk about how to lose well? I think losing is very important. Uh, it goes actually along the lines of what we talked about last week, learn helplessness and things like that. Uh, to it's extract... important to have that experience. Absolutely. It's important to extract everything you can from the loss. Yeah, you can be emotional about it. You can experience it. Absolutely. I think that's important too. Being a good loser, being gracious. I actually think, speaking of Conor McGregor again, that when he lost the first time to Nate Diaz, and it was no one predicted that. No one saw that. And he took it like like a champ. He went to the press conference. He didn't go back home and tuck himself away. And he sat there and he's like, he beat my ass, you know, mm-hmm. and to take responsibility, take responsibility, take accountability. And the first thing he said was, I'm going to be back. I'm going to go back. I know where I need to train. I, look, it happens. This is a sport where this happens. And it's really hard. Like a lot of boxers, when they are coming up, they're they're kind of spoon fed opponents. And it, it's, it's just part of boxing. You get these, you know, they call them tomato cans or whatever, because when you punch them, they bleed. And they're just kind of like tomato can. They're just Jeez. like there to journeyman. They're there to advance the other guy's career. And then when they get into a real fight with a real competitor and lose, it damages them terribly. We talked about that at last week with, with Ronda Rousey. Yeah. It's the same thing. And fighters are never the same. If they have a good corner and they're learning from that loss, they can come back and be as strong as ever. Lennox Lewis is a perfect example. He loses to Rachman in this incredible fight where he gets knocked out. The very first fight he comes back to is a rematch with Rachman, and he he knocks him out. And it, and it's incredible. It's like what you can do. The real champions are measured, but how they get back up. Muhammad Ali, same thing. How he got back up and still maintained his championship mentality. It's almost like if you do take a loss, you have to look at it as a necessary step toward becoming a champion, mm-hmm. toward learning how to earn that win. Yeah. The other thing that makes me think about is the concept of post-traumatic growth which is this idea that after a traumatic event or a major loss, more often than not, people actually talk about feeling like they've grown and that their life is richer as a result of whatever that bad thing was in their lives. I love that. I think that's that's really important in this day and age. And I think a lot of people that go through trauma growing up, I mean, even both of our lives, like you and I didn't, we went through some pretty traumatic things growing up. And without that, Who's to say we would be doing this podcast right now? I mean, there, there's yeah. so many other factors, but I love the idea of post, post-traumatic growth. Yeah, some of the best parts of who we are. Oh, such a brilliant concept. Are built on the backs of some of our worst experiences. The final thing that I'll share when it comes to winning and losing is also just recognizing how important it is to focus on goals you can control versus a win or a loss. Because at the end of the day, mm. the team that wins the Super Bowl they're not necessarily objectively better. I'm sorry if this is no, no. That's it's it's the team that's better that day. But yeah. there's so it's the team that's better that day. It could be something, something gets in someone's eye. It could be a mistake that a coach makes. It could be I don't actually understand all the factors. You <laughs> <laughs> said something. I was trying to bite my tongue. They lost because he had something in his eye. <laughs> Point is. Sorry, I'm sorry. It's happened. Yeah, I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. Someone had a toothache that day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they stubbed their toe. Um, Ronnie Lott broke his finger uh, right before the Super Bowl. His uh, pinky. And they told him he couldn't play 
with his cast. So he opted to amputate his pinky. Get the heck out of here. Ronnie Locke. He was an idol of mine. Please tell me he won. Yeah, they won. They won? won. And he has, I think it's on his right hand. (laughs) Uh, The way that you're going to tell that pinky story is going to be so different depending on whether you win or lose. Absolutely. But no, even still, mad respect. But that's beautiful because it's about, he wanted to play. Yeah, he wanted to play. I still think at the end of the day, the win or the loss, that can't be the most important thing. It's ultimately got to be, you're giving me such a sport sport fan <laughs> look right now but if you, if you think about no, it it's, I get it. it's I just get this saying. moment right yeah. and really what matters is did you achieve the things that you set out to achieve if you win fantastic if you lose which is going to happen more often than not let's be really gracious champion like losers and take the time to really learn from it agree to disagree just kidding no no just kidding uh, not not discrediting anything you said because i believe in it 100 especially at like the developing years when kids are just starting to learn their sports i do think that's important and i hope that coaches are listening out there and making sure that the kids are really learning how to play the game through the loss and speaking of winning speaking of losing We lost a very important athlete this week. Um, Shockingly, Kobe Bryant and his daughter perished in a helicopter crash recently. And I think it was really hard, actually, when I found out what the topic was for this particular podcast, because it's still so fresh in my mind. And I am a tried and true... Spurs fan and I can tell you this that anytime Kobe was on the court he made my team and every other team better and I'm grateful that I got to see such a competitor play the game any game and we should all take time to acknowledge that life is fleeting and like you said wins and losses are also fleeting And the most important thing is how you show up to play the game. And with that in mind, I'd like to thank you for listening to Talk Talk Psych to Me. me.